All right, welcome back once again to the Counter Vortex with your ranter, Bill Weinberg, ranting at you in the wee hours of March 12th, 2022, from my apartment on Manhattan's Lower East Side. And in recent weeks, I've been ranting a lot about the uh, phenomenon of fascist pseudo-anti-fascism, all of this ultra-cynical and relentless Nazi-baiting of the Ukrainians to justify an illegal war of aggression against them. Well, now I'm going to have to rant against a related phenomenon of pseudo-pacifist war propaganda. And tonight, I have to say, I am just sick at heart at all of the relentless horror, the daily mounting atrocities being committed by Russian forces in Ukraine. Over two million refugees now. This sick game of pretending to open humanitarian corridors for refugees to escape and then bombing the corridors. The apparent use of thermobaric bombs, the most powerful so-called conventional weapons. The bombing of schools and hospitals and firing on nuclear plants with artillery, seemingly to intentionally terrorize the population by risking radiation release. And in the one city that the Russians have taken, Kherson, the populace, with humbling courage, took to the streets in unarmed and peaceful demonstrations to oppose them and were fired upon by Russian troops, apparently with at least one casualty. And amid all of this depravity, I would say that approximately one half of the posts that I see from my overwhelmingly left-wing and anti-war friends on Facebook are shilling for Putin to one degree or another. Now, few have the courage to overtly cheer him on, but plenty are making excuses for him. It's NATO's fault, or echoing his propaganda by portraying the Ukrainians as Nazis, or changing the subject by cynically bringing up Yemen, Gaza, Iraq, Afghanistan, etc. It does not say a lot for the moral compass of the American left, to say the least. And how ironic that it is the so-called anti-war people who, it turns out, actually don't give a shit about human life, with the whole world aghast at what Russia is doing in Ukraine. It's the so-called anti-war voices in the West that are echoing Putin's propaganda and making excuses for his war. All right, let's do a little deconstructing of this propaganda. Let's start with the line that it's all NATO's fault for expanding East and provoking Russia. I find all of this concern with the security interest, quote-unquote, of the aggressor nation to be very ironic. I'd like to hear more about the security interests of Ukraine, the smaller nation and one of the poorest in Europe that was formerly colonized by the great power and continental giant next door. And we hear all of this talk from the parties under discussion about the supposed promises that were made to Russia 
in the early 90s, which were never formalized, that NATO would not expand. But no talk about the actual formalized promises which were made to Ukraine in this period, in the 1994 Budapest Memorandum, that its security and borders would be respected in exchange for giving up the nuclear weapons that were left on its territory after the Soviet collapse. Promises which have now been utterly betrayed. Betrayed for at least eight years since Russia started carving enclaves out of Ukraine's national territory, as Hitler did with Czechoslovakia. What is wrong with you people who are acting like Russia is the aggrieved party here? Okay, then we have the the Ukrainians are all Nazis canard and the incessant propaganda that waves the bloody shirt of the um, Azov Battalion, this paramilitary force on the Ukrainian side that really does have neo-Nazi proclivities, but whose actual influence is being blown out of all proportion by Putin and his unpaid echo chamber in the West. And it's interesting that the Azov Battalion was even used as propaganda to justify the bombardment of the maternity hospital in Mariupol, with Russia claiming that it had been taken over as a barracks by the Azov Battalion. An obvious lie, contradicted by all of the video footage that we've all seen showing traumatized women being evacuated from the shell of the building, is like they're not even trying to be plausible in their lies. It's Orwellian levels of chutzpah. And let's be clear, in the 2019 election that brought Volodymyr Zelensky to power in Ukraine, the far right got 2% of the vote. And currently, right sector, the only Ukrainian political party that can really be considered neo-Nazi, has no seats in the Ukrainian parliament, the Rada. The mainstream political consensus in Ukraine since the Maidan revolution of 2014 has been pro-democracy and pro-European. And the Maidan revolution, or Euro-Maidan, as it was called by its supporters, which the ignorant call a Nazi coup in a neat little reversal of reality, was seen by most Ukrainians as ushering in a period of democratic renewal after the period of rule by pro-Russian oligarchs under Yanukovych. And Zelensky, the second president to be elected in free elections since Euromaidan, is also Ukraine's first Jewish president. And here's an interesting item that I just blogged about today on my website, countervortex.org, concerning the Tartars of the Crimean Peninsula, which, of course, was illegally annexed by Russia in 2014. The Tartars had an autonomous government under Ukraine's rule, and the Ukraine parliament adopted a law on indigenous peoples in 2021, further recognizing their identity and rights. The law, introduced by President Zelensky, recognized the Crimean Tartars, Karaites, and Krimchaks as, quote, indigenous peoples of Ukraine, unquote. Both the law and the autonomous Tartar government were abrogated by Russia after the annexation, or the autonomous majlis of the 
Crimean Tartars was dissolved by Russia and much of its leadership arrested. And the, the law, which was passed after the peninsula had been illegally annexed, of course, was not recognized by Russia. Now, the Tartars are a Muslim people related to the Turks and Mongols. The Karaites and Krimchaks are Jewish indigenous ethnicities in the Crimea. So who was on the side of tolerance and a multicultural society here? And who was on the side of Islamophobia and anti-Semitism? Talk about reading things backwards. And meanwhile, as I've repeatedly emphasized, in Russia, a one-man autocracy is being rapidly consolidated under a strong man who has been in power either as president or prime minister continuously since 1999, and in recent years has passed legislation criminalizing the promotion of homosexuality and decriminalizing wife-beating, and all of this was before the current totalizing police state, with civil society and organized opposition being completely shut down, as we now witness in the past two weeks since the invasion of Ukraine was launched. And furthermore, there are more far-right elements on the Russian side, like the Night Wolves paramilitary group and the Wagner Group mercenary outfit and the Russian Imperial Movement and the various Cossack formations. But the anti-war <clears throat> dupes who wave the bloody shirt of the Azov Battalion are totally blind to that. And you know what the difference is? In Russia, unlike in Ukraine, the ultranationalist far right actually holds power at the very highest level. This is all, once again, ultra-cynical, fascist, pseudo-anti-fascism. It is Russia that has launched an illegal war of aggression against Ukraine and is currently carrying out unspeakable atrocities on Ukrainian soil, not the other way around. And you know what? The radical right here in the United States is not so confused. They know that Putin is their man. I'm going to read a little excerpt from an article in The Guardian of March 5th. How Putin has morphed into a far-right savior. Key to white survival, quote-unquote. I read from the text. Can we get a round of applause for Russia? Asked Nick Fuentes on stage last week at a white nationalist event. Amid a roar of applause for the Russian president, just days after he invaded Ukraine, many attendees responded by shouting, Putin! Putin! It would be easy to dismiss the America First Political Action Conference, AFPAC, in Orlando, Florida, as a radical fringe. But speeches by two Republican members of Congress, one in person, the other via video, guaranteed national attention and controversy. And that's, of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene of Georgia in person and Paul Gosar of Arizona via video. The backlash showed how the war in Ukraine has exposed the American far right's affinity with Putin. That affinity is complicated by the tortured relationship between Russia and former President Donald Trump, whose rise Moscow supported with a covert operation to undermine U.S. democracy. In the words of uh, 
the writer of this article, Sergio Olmos, a contestation that I would argue is incontrovertible. He goes on to write, in 2004, David Duke, a longtime leader of the Ku Klux Klan, described Russia as, quote, key to white survival, end quote. Putin's Russia, that is, of course. In 2017, Ann Coulter, a right-wing author and commentator, opined, quote, in 20 years, Russia will be the only country that is recognizably European, end quote. But Ukraine is the Nazi state. Really, guys? Okay, then there's uh, the what aboutery, as it's called, with everybody thinking they're so clever by commenting, why does nobody pay attention to Yemen? I find this very ironic. First of all, Yemen does, in fact, get some coverage from the dreaded mainstream media. That's how we know about it, remember? And the alternative, so-called alternative media or left media, basically tail ends the demonized mainstream media, reporting on the same stuff they report, but with the knee-jerk response of saying that the mainstream media is getting it wrong, even when they aren't, or more ironically, complaining that the mainstream media isn't covering something like Yemen, when everything that these commentators know about the situation is from the mainstream media. And usually, on social media at least, the carnage in places like Yemen is only brought up when it is time to relativize the carnage in places like Ukraine. And the reason that I find this all particularly ironic and repugnant is that, you know, the, the raison d'etre of, of my project of 20 years, Counter Vortex, is to bring to light conflicts that are going on all around the world, which really are ignored by the mainstream media and the so-called alternative media alike. Now, over the course of the past couple of months, the past few months, I've written accounts about conflicts in places like Nagaland and Western Togoland and Lunda Chokwe and the Udai Sultanate and Gorno Badakhshan and Izidi Khan, places that most of my readers have never heard of. Reports that I wrote from following the local media in the Indian subcontinent, Africa, Central Asia, and parts of the Middle East that really don't get mainstream media coverage or alternative media coverage. And I do this work to very little interest from the people who complain the loudest about the mainstream media. And I'll add that one of those ongoing wars, which is only getting perfunctory coverage from the mainstream media and none from the alternative media, is the ongoing bombardment of northern Syria, which has been bombed by Russia continuously since 2015. Syria has been bombed by Russia continuously, as in every few days since 2015. And now, you know, the war has been largely uh, taken to the north, particularly Idlib province, which is the one pocket which uh, the regime, uh, the, the Russian-backed regime has not yet conquered, which is continuing to uh, you know, come under, under Russian and regime bombardment to zero concern from the anti-war or supposed anti-war voices in this country. And I'll also point out that during this same period, 
Syria has been coming under intermittent bombardment by the United States and by Israel. Again, to zero concern from the anti-war hypocrites, except on the two occasions, April 2017 and April 2018, when in response to chemical attacks, the U.S. bombed Assad regime air bases and destroyed a few warplanes, claiming no civilian casualties. That's what elicited protest. But the ongoing carnage in North Syria, which continues even now at the hands of Russia? Crickets. And similarly, when U.S. warplanes in a campaign that lasted for months destroyed the city of Raqqa, which was held by ISIS in northern Syria, no response from the anti-war people. But the Russian bombardment continues even now. I guess, you know, most of those warplanes have been brought back to... uh, to bomb Ukraine, but at least, you know, continued right up until a few weeks ago. Again, I'm going to read an account from from my website, January 4th, 2022. Russian warplanes bomb Idlib water station. Russian warplanes are reported to have carried out an air raid on the main water pumping station for the city of Idlib, capital of the besieged province of that name in Syria's north. Witnesses on the ground said Russian Sukhoi jets Drop bombs on the water plant, as well as several towns outside the provincial capital on January 2nd. UN humanitarian official Mark Cutts acknowledged the air raid without naming the perpetrators, tweeting, quote, The country is already facing a water crisis and continued destruction of civilian infrastructure will only cause more suffering of civilians, end quote. An official in the opposition administration of the city of Idlib, said the plant is now out of operation, charging, quote, the Russians are focusing on infrastructure and economic assets. This is to add to the suffering of the people, end quote. Quote from Abu Hazem Idlibi, an official in the opposition administration of the city of Idlib back in January. And Russia is just doing the same thing on a far more massive scale now in Ukraine. So is the point of bringing up... Uh, Yemen and Gaza and so on, in response, explicitly as a response to the Russian aggression in Ukraine. Is the point to change the subject, or is the point to bringing up Yemen and Gaza and so on now, in response to Ukraine, that if the U.S. and its allies and proxies commit war crimes, then it's okay when Russia does it? Is that the point? And if that's the point, you don't see how this line of reasoning, if we may so flatter it, legitimizes U.S. war crimes? I mean, seriously, what is wrong with you people? Okay, then there are the inevitable experts (laughs) who are being turned to to justify a Putin abetting position. First and foremost, of course, Noam Chomsky. The headline in truthout.org featuring an interview with him. Noam Chomsky, a no-fly zone over Ukraine could unleash untold violence. I mean, I see headlines like this and I just despair. Like, there isn't untold violence being unleashed now? And, you know, he pays a little bit of lip service in this piece, in this interview, to uh, the suffering of the Ukrainians, but immediately changes the subject to the suffering of the Kurds in Turkey and the Palestinians in Gaza, etc., etc., and harping on the double standards of the Western powers, which is obvious 
all in the service of, you know, making the argument that no, we shouldn't do anything to help the Ukrainians. I am so sick of this fatuous hierophant pontificating on the fates of others a world away from the comfort and safety of Cambridge. Do you think any of us need to be lectured about the risks of escalation from a no-fly zone? Noam Chomsky. You don't think that's obvious? How about grappling with what are we supposed to do here? What is your answer to the Ukrainians who are demanding a no-fly zone? Drop dead? Your deaths are an acceptable price for world peace? And I'll return to the, uh, the role that Syria played as Putin's test war for Ukraine. Now, when Aleppo was being bombed in 2015-2016, the inhabitants of the city were desperately calling for a no-fly zone, just like the Ukrainians are today. And we were told by all these same voices that, no, there can't be any no-fly zone over Syria because it would mean a confrontation with Russia and lead to nuclear war. So Aleppo was destroyed with impunity. And Putin's local client, Bashar Assad, serially used chemical weapons with impunity, which sent a message that they can get away with this sort of thing. And the destruction of cities and the use of weapons of mass destruction was normalized. And here we are, just a few years later, on the brink of nuclear war. Gee, that really worked. And I'll again contrast the situation with Rojava, the Kurdish-controlled enclave in northern Syria, which had come to win some support from at least the sort of anarchist-leaning sectors of the, the Western left. And when their territory was invaded by Turkey in late 2019, then all of a sudden it became permissible to demand a no-fly zone for at least certain sectors of the Western left. And even Chomsky spoke in support of a no-fly zone to protect the Rojava Kurds. But when Aleppo was getting bombed to rubble by Putin just a couple of years earlier, and the residents were desperately demanding an no-fly zone, the response of the left, including Chomsky, was at best silence. Or at worst, opposing a no-fly zone in knee-jerk, unthinking manner that showed no concern with the lives of the victims. Or worse still, like Stephen Cohen in The Nation, portraying the victims of the bombardment as ISIS, which was simply a lie with no basis in reality at all. Again, Orwellian chutzpah. And I'm not here to advocate a no-fly zone, but I am here to ask, why is the first response of the so-called anti-war forces in the West to oppose a hypothetical no-fly zone rather than to oppose urgently and above all else Putin's bombardment and war of aggression in Ukraine and grapple with the difficult question of what responsibilities we in the outside world do have to the Ukrainians at this moment. And another so-called expert who is being turned to, very disappointingly, is John Mearsheimer, who is not even on the left but a conservative policy wonk of the paleocon right. And a lot of my supposed, you know, leftist friends have been sharing a video of his recent lecture entitled, and the name itself is so revealing, Why is Ukraine the West's Fault? Featuring John Mearsheimer, put on, the, uh, on YouTube by the University of Chicago. 
Now, apart from all of the other problems with this video, the title is utterly patronizing and contemptuous. This is really beneath you, University of Chicago, or so we would hope. Ukraine is a country. Do you view its existence as a problem? Ukraine is the West's fault. Unbelievable. It's going along implicitly with Putin's propaganda that Ukraine doesn't even have any, any, any existence or rights of the sovereign entity. Very much the same kind of denialism that the Israelis have typically maintained about the Palestinians, viewing their mere existence as a problem. Not why is the Ukraine invasion the West's fault, or why is the Ukraine war the West's fault, which would be sickening enough as it implicitly lets Putin off the hook for his own actions. But why is Ukraine the West's fault? Unbelievable. And to me, all of this recalls George Orwell's observation in 1945, quote, pacifist literature abounds with equivocal remarks, which, if they mean anything, appear to mean that violence is perhaps excusable if it is violent enough. All in all, it is difficult not to feel that pacifism, as it appears among a section of the intelligentsia, is secretly inspired by an admiration for power and successful cruelty, end quote. And taking stock of how it has come to this, more than a generation after the end of the Cold War, is again very instructive if you actually get the full picture. Ukraine declared a neutral and demilitarized path upon independence in 1991. So how did it come to Ukraine actually codifying in its constitution in 2019 its aspiration to join NATO? What happened in the intervening years to bring about this shift? Russia's war in Chechnya and destruction of its capital Grozny by aerial bombardment twice by Yeltsin in 1995 and by Putin in 1999, Putin's invasion of Georgia in 2008, Putin's campaign of subversion against the electoral process in Ukraine in 2010, resulting in the Orange Revolution, and finally, in 2014, his annexation of Crimea and sponsorship of separatist enclaves in the Donbass, fomenting and supporting a war in Ukraine's territory. And all of this is invisible to John Mearsheimer and Noam Chomsky. And all of the people out there who fancy themselves anti-war, who are echoing this blame the victim line relentlessly on social media. And by victims, of course, I mean the Ukrainians who were implicitly blamed for wanting to join NATO without any grappling as to why that is. Okay, before I conclude, we're going to take a little side trip here into a um, historical excursion. This past week marked both the birthday and the anniversary of the death of Taras Shevchenko, the Ukrainian national poet. And uh, there is a Taras Shevchenko place on a uh, little alley just off of 7th Street near Cooper Square, a block which is, uh, you know, just a, just a couple of blocks away from where I live, a block which is um, the hub of the Ukrainian community here in the East Village, 
of New York City. Now, I never knew much about, despite having seen that street sign, you know, for all the years I've been living here, the many years I've been living here, you know, past that street sign, Taras Chevchenko Place, many, many times. Uh, I never knew much about him until uh, just now. The Ukrainian Museum, another neighborhood institution, just posted a page about him, from uh, which I am going to read a little bit. Very interesting and instructive history. Uh, slightly condensed and with my annotations. Taras Chevchenko, poet, artist, icon, 1814 to 1861. Taras Chevchenko was born into serfdom on March 9th, 1814, on an estate outside Kiev, and bought his freedom through selling his artwork as a young man. Relying on scholarships, stipends, and the kindness of friends, Shevchenko enrolled at the Academy of Arts in St. Petersburg. By the time he graduated in 1845, Shevchenko was recognized as an accomplished artist, and by then had also attained considerable renown as a poet and writer, having published his first collection of poetry in 1840, the well-received Kobzar, which is a reference to the um, Ukrainian stringed instrument of the lute family. His inspirational poetry and unconventional writing choices brought him celebrity as well as notoriety. Criticized by the literati and censors, not only for writing in Ukrainian as opposed to Russian, which was considered the only suitable literary language in the empire, but also for another serious misstep, writing poetry that was about Ukraine and its long history of subjugation and suffering under Russian domination. For this, he was marked as a person of interest and potential danger to the empire, although he also wrote about less controversial subjects and published in the Russian language. His fate as a menace to the Tsar shadowed him for the rest of his life. In 1843, while still at the academy, Shevchenko received permission for visits to his native Ukraine, where he planned to eventually live and work. In 1847, he was arrested near Kiev in connection with his association with a Ukrainian society of young intellectuals, the Cyril and Methodius Brotherhood, suspected to be a subversive organization by the Tsar and his officials. The arrest changed the trajectory of the rest of Shevchenko's life. The trial unfair even by the standards of the day, resulted in a sentence of exile to Central Asia for an indefinite period of time. He spent the next 10 years of his life prohibited from returning to either Ukraine or Russia. Assigned to a military unit in the eastern outpost of the empire, at various times in today's Kazakhstan and Uzbekistan, Shevchenko survived his sentence by relying on his artistic talents Forbidden by the Tsar to paint or write as part of his punishment in exile, he was nevertheless engaged as the company artist and as a semi-official portraitist for military personnel. In 1850, while still serving his sentence, Shevchenko was arrested again, this time for violating the terms of his penal service, for painting, even though much of what he painted, paradoxically, was at the behest of his commanding officers. Finally, in 1857, with the help of loyal friends who had appealed for leniency, Shevchenko was released from exile. 
Free to return to St. Petersburg after an arduous nearly eight-month journey back to Russia, Shevchenko immersed himself once again in the city's cultural life and renewed his friendships. In the fall of 1858, he was introduced to the famous African-American stage actor Ira Aldridge, best known for his Shakespearean roles. The story of their brief but genuine friendship was described in detail in the memoirs of Ekaterina Tolstoy, the daughter of Count Fyodor Petrovich Tolstoy, who appears to have been Russia's national dean of arts in this period, apparently no relation to the more famous Leo Tolstoy. For Chevchenko, however, complete freedom remained an elusive dream. Under police surveillance during a trip to Ukraine in 1859, Shevchenko was arrested for a blasphemous and subversive speech and advised to return to St. Petersburg. Though the case against him was soon dropped, the message was clear that his life would be made miserable should he attempt another return to Ukraine. Undeterred, he proceeded with plans to relocate to a modest home near his birthplace. But before his vision could be fulfilled, he was taken ill in St. Petersburg. He died on March 10, 1861, age 47. Buried in a St. Petersburg cemetery, his remains were removed two months later and, in accordance with his wishes, permanently interred on a hill overlooking the Dnipro River just outside Kiev, Ukraine. The site is now a public preserve and home to the Chevchenko Memorial Museum. The spirit of Chevchenko lives on. The catalog of Taras Chevchenko's known body of work includes 835 artworks in existence today, plus 278 that have never been located but are referenced in documentation. The missing works are explained partly by Shevchenko patrons' destruction of the paintings in their possession out of fear of being implicated in his crimes, quote-unquote, reviled during his lifetime by the czarist authorities. Taras Shevchenko earned prominence and respect among Ukrainians, especially for his poetry and his stature as the national Ukrainian poet grew to untold proportions after his death in 1861. The late 19th century saw a national awakening sweep across Ukrainian lands, and Shevchenko's contribution to its rise and spread cannot be overestimated. The coming of the communist revolution in the early 20th century brought his work under the scrutiny of the censors once again, but recognizing the profound impact that Shevchenko had on the Ukrainian nation, Soviet leaders chose not to stifle his memory, opting instead to reinterpret it as revolutionary and anti-imperial in accordance with communist ideology, which I suppose it was in a sense against the empire of the czars. Memorials honoring Shevchenko sprang up in towns and cities all over Ukraine and many other Soviet republics, even in Russia. Annual commemorative pilgrimages to place flowers at the monuments and recite his poetry became commonplace. The post-Stalinist period introduced a political thaw and a cultural renaissance, producing the literary generation of the 1960s, known as the Schist desiat Niki, the 1960ers, but dissent was also on the rise, and fearing the potential for organized political opposition, the authorities warned Ukrainians not to congregate 
at the Shevchenko statues on the anniversary dates. In 1967, the brutal dispersal of a crowd at a Shevchenko monument in Kiev gathered to commemorate the anniversary of his re-internment in Ukraine ended with the arrest of several people. Repression as a means to control independent thought had returned. The Shisht Desiat Niki, who had flourished under less restrictive policies, became victims of the backlash against the freedoms they so briefly enjoyed, an allegory for Shevchenko's own life story. When dissent again became possible, and the new Ukrainian National Awakening began in the late 1980s and early 1990s, many Ukrainians took up the phrase Boritesya Poborete, Boritesya Poborete, fight and you shall overcome, which is from the poem Kavkaz, the Caucasus, 1845, in which Shevchenko indicts Moscow for its tyranny over Ukraine. Today, nearly every Ukrainian community in the world has a physical manifestation of homage to the father of the Ukrainian nation. In New York City, one can find the Chevchenko Scientific Society and an East Village street called Taras Chevchenko Place. In Paris, a bust of Taras Chevchenko overlooks the eponymous park adjacent to a Ukrainian church. In Buenos Aires, another sculpture of Chevchenko resides in the Parque Tres de Febrero, near the U.S. Embassy. Ukrainians the world over carry their passion for Taras Shevchenko's poetry with them wherever they go. Shevchenko remains a quintessential symbol of their quest for freedom and cultural recognition, even serving as an inspiration for many of the protesters during the late 2013 Euromaidan demonstrations in Kyiv. Activists often cited Shevchenko's poetry in their expressions of national awareness and solidarity. It is not surprising that the first tragic casualty among the Maidan protesters was an Armenian-Ukrainian, Serhi Nigoyan, who had been videotaped just days before his death, reciting Taras Chevchenko's poem, Kavkaz. All of this from the website of the Ukrainian Museum, which is uh, on 6th Street, just off of Taras Chevchenko Place, here in uh, New York City's East Village. Check it out online at ukrainianmuseum.org. So happy birthday, Taras Chevchenko, and may your legacy prove an inspiration as the nation of Ukraine at this moment struggles for its very existence. But I want to end here with a salute to the Russian people, to the many thousands of courageous Russians who have taken to the streets to oppose Putin's war, with some 4,000 arrested from Kaliningrad to Vladivostok, potentially facing long prison terms under the new anti-protest law that was just passed. These are the Russians we should be supporting. And I want to salute OVD Info, one of the last remaining independent human rights groups in Russia, which has been assiduously monitoring the wave of protest and repression across the country at great risk to themselves. I want to salute the popular Russian rap star, Oxymiron, who has been speaking out forthrightly against the invasion of Ukraine 
and has just organized an anti-war charity concert for Ukrainian war relief to be held in Turkey, because of course it's impossible to hold it in Russia, and has launched a social media campaign and is mobilizing his fan base in a network called Russians Against War. These are the Russians we should be supporting. It is the genuine anti-war forces in Russia that give me hope, as well as the Ukrainians, who are demonstrating heroic resistance at this moment. And I trust that before this situation escalates to nuclear war, the Russian people will rise up and overthrow the war criminal Vladimir Putin. This has been Bill Weinberg with the Counter Vortex. Check us out online at countervortex.org. Support us on Patreon. Join the Counter Vortex. Join the resistance. And rant on you next time.